Welcome to Curbside Consult's statistical review, where we break down the different aspects of trial design, methodology, and statistical analyses in studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine. My name is Dr. Ken Wu, one of this year's fellows at the NEJM. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how to analyze and interpret secondary outcomes in clinical trials. When you read clinical trials published in the NEJM, especially any studies that have an accompanying visual abstract or quick take, you'll notice that the focus of the results will be on a primary outcome or endpoint. However, on a closer look at the results section, you'll often find data from the trial under the heading secondary outcomes or endpoints. Secondary outcomes play an important role in providing additional data from a clinical trial, but they come with caveats and require careful interpretation. To explain secondary outcomes in more detail, I'm once again joined by the journal statistical expert, Dr. Dave Harrington. Dr. Harrington is Professor Emeritus of Biostatistics at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, Ken. As always, it's a pleasure to contribute to these podcasts. So Dave and I will be using two examples of studies recently published in the journal to illustrate different aspects of secondary outcomes. These are Riveroxban in Peripheral Artery Disease After Revascularization by Bonica et al., published in March of 2020. And this study was discussed in detail in our last episode of Curbside Consults. And the second trial we'll be discussing is a trial of lipinavir-ritonavir in adults hospitalized with severe COVID-19 by Kao et al., also published in March 2020. Before we go into specific examples, Dave, let me ask you, what is a secondary outcome? Thanks, Ken. Let's begin with the notion of a primary outcome. The primary outcome of a trial is the response the trial investigators considered potentially the clinically most important effect of the intervention being studied. When a trial is designed, investigators are careful to ensure that the trial is large enough to be likely to detect an important effect on the primary outcome, or in other words, that the trial is adequately powered for the primary outcome. Secondary outcomes are important in providing more detail about clinical effect. In the rivaroxaban trial in peripheral artery disease, the primary outcome was a composite of acute limb ischemia, major amputation for vascular causes, myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke, or death from cardiovascular causes. Investigators measured to the time of the first of these events, and the goal of the study was to show whether the rivaroxaban reduced the rate of occurrence of the composite outcome. The secondary outcomes in the trial are shown in Table 2 of the paper and included items such as hospitalization for some thrombotic events, death from any cause, venous thromboembolism, and slightly modified versions of the primary endpoint. The trial also had an important secondary safety outcome of major bleeding. In the lipinavir-ritonavir trial in COVID-19, the primary outcome was the time to improvement of two points on a disease severity scale. Secondary outcomes included 28-day mortality, duration of stay in the ICU, and clinical status. So these collections of secondary outcomes provide really important information to clinicians. So that's great. Thanks, Dave. So you mentioned about trials being adequately powered for the primary outcome. And in fact, there is a previous Curbside Consults podcast explaining the concept of power in more detail that our listeners can refer back to. So if a trial is designed with a focus on the primary outcome, why do secondary outcomes exist? Secondary outcomes are really important in providing a complete picture of the intervention effect. They measure certainly more than just the changes in the primary outcome. 
Physicians or patients considering a treatment certainly want to know what else to expect as a patient begins a treatment. Secondary outcomes, as in the Rivaroxaban trial or the COVID-19 study, provide some of the detail and are often important in showing whether the effect of a treatment is consistent across its biological or clinical effects. As I mentioned earlier, the primary endpoint is the key endpoint in the design of a trial. Generally, the decision of whether to use or approve an intervention in a regulatory setting is based on the primary outcome. Secondary outcomes are generally not used as a key piece of information about approval or widespread use, but they're very important in deciding how to use an intervention. That's great. So it sounds like secondary outcomes are an important aspect of a trial as well. So for a reader, what are some of the general principles that they should bear in mind when they're interpreting results from secondary outcomes? There are several things to keep in mind when reviewing secondary outcomes. Often there are many secondary outcomes. And if each one was tested separately for a statistically significant effect, chance of a false positive would be much higher than 5%. That's the reason NEGM does not allow p-values for secondary outcomes unless the protocol specified a method for adjusting for multiple tests. When the primary outcome is negative, authors should not be claiming that the secondary outcome provides evidence on its own to begin using an intervention. Finally, the pattern of treatment effects in secondary outcomes may be much more important than the result for any one secondary outcome. And so readers often digest or try to understand a more complete picture of the use of the treatment by looking at the secondary outcomes. Okay, so using those principles, let's now look at an example from one of the papers. So the study of rivaroxaban in peripheral artery disease after revascularization by Bonica et al. was recently published in the journal. For an in-depth discussion of the paper, you can listen to our previous episode of Curbside Consults. As a reminder, this double-blind, randomized control trial compared rivaroxaban and aspirin with placebo and aspirin in patients with peripheral artery disease who had undergone revascularization. The primary outcome of this trial was a composite of acute limb ischemia, major amputation for vascular causes, myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke, or death from cardiovascular causes. The study showed that the rivaroxaban and aspirin group had a lower incidence of the primary outcome as compared with the placebo and aspirin group. So this is an example of a composite primary outcome, and there's also a previous curbside consults statistical review exploring this in more detail. The secondary outcomes of this trial contain some themes that can be found in other studies. An example is the composite of acute limb ischemia, major amputation for vascular causes, myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke, or death from coronary heart disease. This is a subtle variation on the primary outcome and is also something that I have seen in other studies published in the journal. Although the data from this secondary outcome followed the primary outcome and showed that the rivaroxaban group had a lower incidence, this isn't always the case. So Dave, what advice would you give to readers on interpreting outcomes which are just slightly different to the primary outcome. Statistically, secondary outcomes which differ only slightly from the primary outcome generally add very little information to the interpretation of the trial. One view is that the trial team is trying to present a more nuanced picture, a more detailed sense of the effect of the intervention. The other, perhaps more cynical view, 
is that the authors are trying to accumulate positive outcomes. So that if the primary outcome is positive, it's likely that a closely related secondary outcome will be positive as well, with the implication that the study might be twice as strong. So readers should be careful not to think that a closely related positive secondary outcome increases the scientific heft of the study. The most valuable secondary outcomes are those that provide a perspective on the intervention that cannot be gleaned from the primary outcome. So one thing I have noticed in this study is that the authors mentioned secondary efficacy outcomes were tested in a hierarchical fashion as pre-specified. Dave, can you explain the meaning of uh, both tested in a hierarchical fashion and also the importance of putting in the word pre-specified into this sentence? So as I mentioned earlier, if one does many tests of significance on secondary outcomes, the false positive rate, the probability that at least one of those will be positive, um, inflates. So hierarchical designs are aptly named, and they're a way to try to protect against that. Hierarchical designs and testing procedures are based on a specification in advance of the key secondary endpoints listed from highest to lowest priority in terms of clinical importance. In a hierarchical procedure, a test for an intervention effect on the highest priority secondary outcome is done first. If that test is statistically significant, at the next step, the intervention effect is tested on the next most important secondary outcome. If that test is statistically significant, one moves to the next outcome, et cetera. The procedure stops at the first test that is negative and no other secondary outcomes are tested. The procedure is designed mathematically to what is called, to control what is called the family-wise error rate, the probability of getting at least one false positive result among the tests for an intervention effect among the secondary outcomes. Mathematically, it's possible to show that if the individual tests in a hierarchical design are done at the 5% level of significance, then the family-wise error rate is maintained at 5%. Pre-specification in a protocol or statistical analysis plan of the significance test to be done when trials analyzed is also important. It's particularly important with hierarchical designs. If an investigator was allowed to re-rank the importance of the secondary outcomes after seeing the results of all the tests, the hierarchical testing procedure would break down. It could be engineered to make calls of significance for some of the secondary outcomes that would never have been tested in a pre-specified design because the procedure might have failed higher up the priority listing. The Ryder-Oxaben study used a hierarchical design to analyze the secondary outcomes that are shown in Table 2 of that paper. Hierarchical designs have become popular in regulatory settings, where the FDA or the EMA is interested in listing in the package insert which secondary outcomes are affected by an intervention. Personally, I'm not particularly fond of hierarchical designs. They're mathematically correct, but they overemphasize the importance of p-values in assessing the complete picture of the intervention effects on secondary outcomes. We have seen instances where a study team front loads the hierarchy with secondary outcomes closely related to the primary outcome and which would likely be significant if the primary outcome is. In those situations, simply counting the number of significant secondary outcomes is not meaningful. So it sounds like there are some pitfalls in the secondary outcomes regarding their interpretation and especially uh, intentions of the authors. 
So we're now going to look at a different study to explore the potential value that secondary outcomes can add. So at the time of recording, we are anticipating the results of numerous clinical trials testing potential therapies for COVID-19 that are currently underway. The journal published one of the early randomized controlled trials for COVID-19 in March uh, 2020, and that was titled A Trial of Lopinavir-Ritonavir in Adults Hospitalized with Severe COVID-19 by Cao et al. This study found that there was no significant difference between lopinavir ritonavir and standard care with respect to their primary outcome, which was the time from randomization to an improvement of two points on a seven-point ordinary scale. In one of their secondary outcomes, the day 28 mortality was numerically lower in the lopinavir ritonavir group compared with standard care. Now, mortality is an important endpoint that clinicians and the general public look for but it is listed as a secondary outcome. Given that secondary outcomes need careful interpretation, I'm going to ask you, Dave, how would you interpret this outcome in the context of this study, especially when compared to their primary outcome? I think the best interpretation here is that there may be a signal about mortality in this trial, but the precision with which the signal was measured was weak, perhaps because of sample size, or perhaps because the effect on mortality is relatively small. So whatever information is suggested by this trial in its secondary outcome of mortality has to be confirmed in a later study. This is a statistically sound view, but one that may be frustrating to clinicians who are making decisions daily on how to treat COVID-19. But it's important for clinicians to know whether the result is very unlikely to be wrong or comes with more uncertainty than we would like. Perhaps it is best summed up by the view that a patient with COVID-19 may well live longer on the lopinavir-rotinavir treatment, but do not be surprised if that's not the case. Now, I also want to ask about safety outcomes. So from my time at the journal, I've seen some trials, such as the lopinavir-rotinavir trial, publish data on safety as a list of adverse events in a table. But in other trials, such as the rivaroxaban in peripheral artery disease after revascularization trial that we discussed earlier, present safety data as a trial outcome with hazard ratios, confidence intervals, and p-values. In fact, the rivaroxaban trial has a further distinction between primary and secondary safety outcomes. So Dave, how would you advise readers on interpreting safety data when they're more formally presented as a trial outcome? Do they count as a primary or a secondary outcome? The way in which safety outcomes are presented depends upon the design of the trial. It's important to note that the primary and secondary outcomes are all set at the design stage well before the analysis. Safety outcomes are clearly important. An intervention with a large positive effect may not be useful if the side effects make it difficult to use. In general, trialists do not regard safety as either a primary or secondary outcome, and it's something important that should be considered in parallel by the clinician when thinking about whether to adopt an intervention. We want to be sure at the journal that safety signals are clearly presented, especially signals that might be unexpected. So in those instances, we don't treat safety outcomes as either part of the primary outcome or an important secondary outcome, but something that's considered by the reader 
as important, valuable, extra information that may affect the way in which they might use the intervention. Occasionally, some safety events do become part of primary or secondary goal of the study because they are a known feature of the treatment. And the value of that treatment may be judged by its ability to mitigate that event. Bleeding is one such event in trials involving anticoagulation. A treatment like rivaroxaban would be potentially important if it reduced major bleeding, even if its effect on the primary outcome was modest. Conversely, its value in preventing the composite primary outcome in the Bonaca et al. paper might be tempered somewhat if it caused more major bleeding. So there are instances in which the outcome of a particular safety measure is important to the overall interpretation of a trial. In the rivaroxaban trial, the investigators thought that the amount and nature of bleeding was important enough to pre-specify that it would be an important part of the analysis. While rivaroxaban substantially and statistically significantly delayed the primary composite outcome, it increased the likelihood of major bleeding, statistically significantly so. The nature of that bleeding is shown in Table 3 of the paper. Thanks, Dave. That's really, really useful information. Uh, so lastly, I want to briefly talk about p-values. So last year, the journal published new guidelines for statistical reporting, which discussed a requirement to replace p-values with estimates of effects or association and 95% confidence intervals, when neither the protocol nor the statistical analysis plan has specified methods to adjust for multiplicity. In practical terms, this has largely meant a lack of p-values in secondary outcomes. Now, Dave, I know p-values are a huge topic by itself. So can you briefly explain the rationale behind this and how it applies to secondary outcomes? Briefly, we do allow p-values for secondary outcomes if the family-wise error rate has been controlled with a procedure such as a hierarchical testing or Bronferroni method. But conducting many tests on secondary outcomes without controlling that family-wise error rate increases the chance of a false positive. With as few as 10 secondary outcomes, the chance of at least one false positive can increase by fivefold or more. So if there has been no effort to control that error rate, then all the p-values should be removed. It's more than the p-values that are being removed. We're reminding readers that traditional significance testing in this setting is likely to be wrong and should not be done. There is another issue about p-values that is important. A p-value is a very bad summary of the effect of an intervention primary or secondary. Significant p-values may be caused by very small differences in large studies, and non-significant p-values might mask potentially large differences measured with a great deal of uncertainty. So we wanted to prevent readers from putting too much emphasis on the p-values for secondary outcomes and not looking at the measures of uncertainty and the point estimates of either association or effect. I have a question for you, Ken. It may sound rhetorical, but it's not. As a clinician, what value do you see in large numbers of p-values for secondary outcomes? Ah, so now the guest becomes the host on this podcast. Well, being a relatively junior clinician and researcher, I had a limited interpretation of p-values before I started the fellowship of the journal. So I used to think p-values were the holy grail of results. So if a p-value showed significance in a secondary outcome, then essentially there's an effect there. Now, I have to admit that was in part due to inexperience, uh, but also in part due to laziness. And there are numerous cartoons and memes about p-values that can be found on the internet, which represent the sort of 
frustrated humour of researchers. But I have learned from my time being at the journal that p-values form only a piece of the statistical trial puzzle. The lack of p-values in secondary outcomes have actually forced me to think deeper about the interpretation of the data beyond a quick and easy way of does it work or does it not work. And with that, that wraps up this episode of Curbside Consult. I've certainly learned a lot about secondary outcomes in this episode, and I hope you as the listeners have as well. Thanks again to Dr. Dave Harrington for joining us for this episode. Thank you, Ken. For more information about some of the statistical topics mentioned in this podcast, as well as an in-depth look at the rivaroxaban in peripheral artery disease after revascularization study, please check out previous episodes of Curbside Consults on NEJM Resident 360. Curbside Consults is a production of the NEJM Group, and we come to you from NEJM Resident 360. Our production team here at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Carl Simmons, Mike Thomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Special thanks also to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. Opie Hampick. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at resident360 at NEJM.org. You can follow NEJM Resident 360 and NEJM on Twitter and look for NEJM on Instagram and Facebook. On behalf of NEJM Resident 360, this is Dr. Ken Wu signing off.